Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Weagle 91.1 on, at Thursdays at 8 a.m. or whatever time and place it is, wherever you're listening. Um, if you're... Uh, to start off, we're joined today by, again by, with Dr. Blair. Dr. Blair earned her undergraduate degrees in English and History from the University of Kentucky before completing her master's and PhD in, of History at the University of Virginia. Dr. Blair is the chair of the History Department at Auburn University and specializes in women's history. She's taught classes on world history, women in American history, and the history of sexuality in the U.S., just to name a few of her subjects. Dr. Blair's first book, titled Revolutionary Expe- Revolutionizing Expectations, Women's Organizations, Feminism, and American Politics, 1965 to 1980 is centered around local feminist action throughout the United States during this time period. Dr. Blair's most recent book, which we'll be discussing more in depth shortly, dived into the stories of five American women who played integral roles in presidential politics from 1932 through 1958. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm delighted to be here. So what led you from studying at the University of Kentucky and the University of Virginia to coming to teach here at Auburn University? Um, So... Academic careers often take interesting paths. Um, I was, when I left UVA, I was actually a lecturer at the University of Georgia for a year. Um, I was teaching uh, four classes a semester with three different, what are called three preps. So three, oh, there's two sections of one class and then two other different classes. Mm So we would call it a four-four with three preps, which (laughs) is an amazing amount of work. Like I did not have kids yet. There's no way, I was not doing anything else but (laughs) writing lectures. Yeah. an amazing amount of work. <laughs> um, and then that that wasn't a permanent job, though. Mm. So I went from there to a very small liberal arts college uh, outside Asheville, North Carolina, called Warren Wilson College, uh, where I taught for six years and where I was the Americanist <laughs> on the staff. So I taught both halves of U.S. history. I taught upper-level classes everywhere from the Civil War through modern U.S. Oh, wow. I taught African-American history. I taught women's history. I taught a class on the 20th century South. I did. I was the Americanist. I did everything, <laughs> um, which I think is is sort of reflected to a certain extent in in the new book, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm writing about presidential campaigns. Yeah. Like I'm a I'm a women's historian by training, but I'm also I'm really a political historian who studies yeah. women. Yeah. Um, and so I getting to be that kind of generalist um, for six years, mm-hmm. I think really helped in sort of bringing me to this book. I also took um, took a decent amount of political history classes uh, in graduate school. Um, but then what brought me from Wilson to Auburn um, was mostly the opportunities that I had to do more research here, right? That was a small mm, yeah. liberal arts college. It was a teaching intensive school. I was teaching a three, three, three classes a, a semester, none of them, you know, three different classes every semester. Um, when my first book got published while I was there, it was sort of like, good job. <laughs> and that was it. Right, right. Um, and there wasn't like, so the book that we're going to talk about was not a book that I had even thought of yeah. when I was there. Huh. 
because I never would have had the time or the money to do the archival research that I had to do to write this book. Mm. That makes sense. Um, And so that was was part of it. Um, Also, the the other big part of it was that... um, my husband works in sort of higher education mm-hmm. staff stuff, um, and he never had a full-time job the whole time we were in Asheville. Oh, wow. So <laughs> that was the other part. Yeah. <laughs> was, was getting to a place where it might be more possible for him to, like, find a job. Right, right. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I got uh, I got to Auburn uh, the fall 2015 semester yeah. um, was when I started here. So this is year eight. Wow. Right? Year eight? Year nine. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> year nine, I guess. Yes, we have been here eight years. This is year nine. Yeah. Right. Okay. For us here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's a really cool story and neat how you've gotten to have experiences at different colleges, both getting your degrees and teaching. So yeah, very neat. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So for another like background question, how has your role as chair of the history department at Auburn University given you a new perspective on history education, or has it just remained consistent with your perspective on things. Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I've been chair for a little over a year. This Mm -hmm. is my second year as chair. Um, And so seeing how other departments in in the College of Liberal Arts handle things and approach things has been really interesting. Um, The most, in terms of how I think about history education, um, the most interesting thing for me, the most sort of and I'm still sort of thinking through it because this was just about a month ago, Mm. Um, the department chair of history at the University of Mississippi back the first of the year sent all the other SEC history department chairs an email and was like, hey, we should know each other. Yeah. Um, And so about two-thirds of us were in Oxford, Mississippi about a month ago. Wow. uh, For a weekend. And that was really cool to see how sort of peer institutions, like what are we doing that's the same? Um, What are we doing? What do they do that's different? Um, So any... Uh, my two my two interviewers here will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Anybody who's a student in the history department will know what I'm talking about. Um, but we hand out this flyer every semester that yeah. has little descriptions of every like elective class that we're teaching. Yes. Um, and then on the other on the back of it, it's got the requirements of the major and the minor. Mm-hmm. We have doubled the number of minors since we started doing that. Oh wow! Um, and I, uh, because we pass it out in world history. Yeah. Um, and like everybody else was like, "Oh my gosh, that's brilliant!" I was like, "How are we in 2023 where a flyer yeah. is like <laughs> the exciting innovation?" Right, thing? right. Um, <laughs> but it's because it's 2023, right? Yeah. We started doing it because we're like, if we just send another email, nobody's going to read it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great but point. But if we put it in their hands in world history, mm-hmm. like out of the 2,000 students in world history, we only need like we get like six right yeah to see a class and like oh, that sounds cool yeah that's a win yeah for us and so it was really fascinating how how taken all the my right. fellow chairs were with a flyer yeah yeah <laughs> shout out to my colleague darren ray who is no longer here um but uh he he got the academic stream which was a tenure track position back home uh um, which for him is utah oh wow um, so yeah um, <laughs> and so he's no longer at auburn but it was his idea yeah. in the first place so shout out to darren it was brilliant and yeah. it works yeah that's awesome <laughs> Was there were there any things that other schools had or implemented that you would want to bring here? Yeah, there were definitely some. I mean, and I this is I'm still sort of thinking through and working through this. This is part of being chair, right? It's right. The politics of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but there was definitely one, a couple of schools that were doing something that I've had some sort of early conversations with colleagues about, and also sort of with some colleagues in some other departments. And so it was interesting to hear sort of how those other places have implemented that yeah. program that we've been kind of sort of talking about starting to mm. develop. That was, and those are, 
definitely like connections that I'll be able to go back to and draw yeah. on if we do try to build out that program That's a little really bit cool. more. Yeah. So neat. The number of connections you can make and help helping helping each other throughout the SEC is always a great thing to see. I mean, I'm an SEC alum, so I'm always <laughs> going to say yes to that. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So let's see. For our next question, what is your favorite era of American history to teach? So this was the one. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, yeah. when I got in this morning, just so everybody knows, I was like, there was a question that I wanted to think about it a little bit more. And right. I couldn't find it on the list. It was mm. this one. Because that's a really hard question yeah. to answer. So yeah. I've got two different answers depending okay. on the class. Okay. Um, if I'm teaching just sort of a general 20th century U.S. history class, mm -hmm. I really like teaching the 1970s okay. because it's so important yeah. and it never gets talked about. Yeah. So I really, really like teaching just sort of general politics, economics, what's mm -hmm. going, like big picture stuff in the 1970s oh, yeah. um, because you cannot understand where we have been as a country in my lifetime. I was born in 1980. Like, you can't understand what's been happening for the past 40 years if you right. don't understand the 70s. And right. not enough people <laughs> grasp that. Yeah. Um, so I, in, in a general class, I really like teaching the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm doing women's history or history of sexuality or, or gender history, something more focused, mm -hmm. um, I think it's, I wouldn't say it's my favorite one to teach necessarily, but I think it's super important. Mm -hmm. To start at the beginning and talk about coverture and about the way women were seen under English common law ah, at yes. the time when the United States is starting to, be, it, when the colonies are founded. Yeah. Um, because you can't, just like you can't understand what's happened in the past 40 years without understanding the 70s, mm -hmm. I think, you can't understand the long history of feminism and women's rights activism in the United States if you don't understand that in the 1700s, a married woman had no independent legal personhood. Right. Right. right? You have yeah. to yeah. <laughs> you have to start. And I always love it's like the second day of that class mm -hmm. that I get to talk about this. Um, and students are like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's where we're starting from. Yeah. Like, and everything else that's been happening since then is the fact that a married woman was, and this is a 19th century, maybe Elizabeth Cady Stanton, maybe not, mm -hmm. 19th century women's rights activist. Oh, no, it's in Seneca Falls. It's in the Decla Declaration of Sentiments that it says, you know, she is, a married woman is under the law civilly dead. Right. right? Wow, yeah. They called it civic death. Wow. Um, because you lose your independent legal personhood. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so starting there is really <laughs> also both shocks people. Right. And I think automatically makes people, shifts a lot of people's perspective yeah. on things like women's rights and feminism. Mm. It's like, let me, you know, and even when I get to the 60s, right, when I'm getting ready to start talking about the women's, uh, women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s, I do this sort of like status quo ante in 1965. Mm. And again, students are sort of shocked, even though they've been in my class for three months at that point, right. um, about like, single women can't sign loans, large loans, like mortgages and things mm. on their own. They have to have a male relative co-sign with them. It's crazy. In 1965. Yeah. And it's like that that legal status at the beginning has such long implications. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that's sort of, that's the most meaningful thing that, makes that I think I teach about in that context. Yeah, yeah, yes. A tricky question to tackle, but I think that the, that totally makes sense and is great, great answers. 
So our loyal listeners who have been here since the beginning may remember our conversation with Dr. Blair last season when we discussed people in power across history. This season, we've switched gears and we're focusing our discussions around the idea of uncovering untold stories. How does your work connect to this new theme, Dr. Blair? Um, yes, it is. <laughs> it is very well. Um, it is. Uh, it's really the core of what I do. Um, is is recover the story women's stories in American history. That's if you if you said give me one sentence about what motivates you as a historian, it would be that um, of really just going out and finding because women's history is still a quite young subfield. There's only been a thing called women's history for about fifty years, give or take. There's so many women whose lives we don't know about who did incredible things like the ones that I wrote about in the book, um, but also just women like the ones I wrote about my first book who are just sort of the grassroots troops of really important movements. Right. Um, and so finding those women is is what motivates me as a historian. It's what gets me out of bed every morning to go do the research. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I think that's a great segue to our first ad break, and then we'll get to talk more about your new book if after the break. Great. Good morning and welcome back. All right. So if you're just joining us, we're Sophia and I are joined today by Dr. Blair and her new book, Bringing Home the White House, The Hidden History of Women Who Shaped the Presidency in the 20th Century, which was published by University of Georgia Press in September of 2023, was published in September and can now be found in bookstores across the country. Dr. Blair's newest work highlights the stories of multiple American women who played vital roles in presidential politics for a large portion of the 20th century. So getting us started with your uh, new book and the conversation around that, could you share a brief like introduction with our listeners of your book? Sure. So the book is a sort of what I call it a group work biography, because I'm okay. not talking a ton about their, their personal lives, although right. it pops up occasionally, um, but a group work biography of these five women who ran the women's division of the Democratic and Republican National Committees from the 1930s through the 1950s. Mm. Um, and so it's, and I, I look at the women who are, who are in the White House doing this work. So I look at three women who worked for FDR, uh, one woman who worked for Truman, and one woman who worked for Eisenhower. Okay. Um, cool. And yeah, and they what I basically find is that these women and the women's division, both parties, is at the absolute center of how presidential campaigns worked, wow. how they did the work of yeah. campaigns. Um, in in these middle decades in the 20th century, some really important elections, right? Yeah. This is, you know, Truman's upset victory in 48, FDR winning a third and fourth term right. earlier in the 1940s. Um, all of these really big, important elections, um, women are right at the heart of, and they have been totally absent from right. that story yeah. up until now. Yeah. Oh, exciting. What made you decide to do women from both the Democratic and Republican Party and not just focusing on one political party as a whole? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a question you, you asked. You asked it in a kinder way than people <laughs> often do, which often that question gets asked is, why am I not looking at both parties the whole time oh. that, uh, that my book is covering? Like, why am I only talking about the Republican in the 50s and mm. not talking about the Democrats then? Mm. And so the short answer to the question, especially when it's framed that way, is that I'm interested in the work that these women are doing, but I'm also interested in the ideas about 
about gender that are in the White House. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That are shaping policy, that mm-hmm. have influence. I kind of don't care what Thomas Dewey thought about women. <laughs> like, it's horrible to say, right. but I kind of don't care. Mm. Um, also, from a very practical, like, historian standpoint, there is an excellent book with a really boring title. I always wish it had a better title, but it's just called Republican Women Mm. that goes from 1920 through the 1970s. Okay. Um, I have, like, this, it's by a historian named Catherine Rimpf, um, who's at the University of Missouri. Um, And, like, this book is all over my footnotes of both of my books, quite honestly. Oh, wow. Um, It is, like, my career, and I have, emailed with her and told her this. (laughs) Um, I'm like, I would have been sunk at multiple points in my career were it not for this book being out there. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I build on you all the time. Um, And so those are, that's another reason why, particularly why I'm not looking at the Republicans in the 1930s and 1940s is because Rimf has already done a really good job Mm -hmm. of, of looking at that. Um, And, and also, and I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun of one of your questions a little bit, but just a little bit. No worries. Um, I didn't, I had never heard of these women when I started this project. Right. Right. I did not go looking for them. Mm -hmm. And so the research question that took me into the archives was simply how have presidential campaigns pitched to female voters? That was Uh, the question. uh. Um, And we can talk a little bit if you want in a minute about how I came to that question. Um, But it was also as originally planned, chronologically a much bigger project. Mm. Like the very first grant application I wrote for this thing said I was going to go from 1920 till at least like the end of the 1980s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so if I had done if I had done that, Mm -hmm. there would have the partisan piece of it would have been a lot more balanced. Uh, Yeah. Um, and, And sort of the last thing I'll say about that is that. The system that I'm writing about, this world in which the women's division is very, very influential and at the heart of these campaigns, that's only true in the years that I'm writing about. Hmm. Like, it's a system for reasons that I follow talk about in the book, loses influence, particularly in the second half of the 1950s. Hmm. Um, and so by 1960, it, it, it just doesn't look the same. Like, right. the way that, that women interact with the campaign is just different. Okay. From 1960 forward. So that's the other reason why it's got the chronology on it. But then having that chronology makes the party aspect a little right. a little wonky. Okay, That makes sense. That makes sense. And I like how it ties into what you're always telling us to with starting broad. And then as you're doing your research, the rest will follow. <laughs> yes. Those who've had me in class know that I like a truly enormous research question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just let the sources kind of bring it down. Yeah. That's cool that that applies even at the like, you know, Highest level of doing the history re- history research. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So let's see. For our next question, uh, what motivated you to share the untold stories of the five West Wing women once you discovered them? Yeah. So these women jumped out of the archives at me. Yeah. Like they were there and I was just like, nobody's heard of these women. Right. And they're doing incredible work. Um, so the one who sort of builds this system is a woman named Molly Dusen. Um, she's good friends with both Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, she's been sort of working politically with Eleanor since the mid-1920s. Um, and there was a biography of her that was published in the late 1980s. So, like, I had heard of her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't really processed how central she is to those first couple of New Deal campaigns. Yeah. The women's division that she is running produces 90% of the print media for the 1936 campaign. 
90%. One of my favorite finds in the archives was this exchange of letters between her and this man named Charlie Mickelson, who's the head of publicity for the DNC. Mm. Now, you would think the head of publicity for the DNC is, I don't know, supervising the production of the print media right. for the campaign? No. Oh. No. No, no. Um, huh. The women's division is writing all of it. It's all written completely by women. Wow. And what the letters are is, so there's a women's division. There is also a, like, men's division that's, mm. like, the grassroots men of the party. Mm. And Mickelson has gotten a request from them to get access to these. The main thing are these things called rainbow flyers. So they're just, they're mm. flyers. They're what they sound like, sort of one-page uh, broadsides, each one of which talks about, like, a different topic, okay. of a different issue of the campaign. And they print about 15 of them, mm -hmm. different 15 different titles. Um, it, that they're printing in the millions for the wow. 36 campaign. Um, and so the men have asked to use these, to have some rainbow flyers that they can pass out. And, and Deucin writes Mickelson back, and she's like, the men's division may certainly have them. They have to pay for them, uh, like yeah. everyone else does. <laughs> right. She's like, and I'm not going to send any single man more than 500 like sets of 15 mm. at a time because I don't want them just sitting in an office not getting passed out. If he uses uh -huh. his 500, he can write back and get more. <laughs> wow. And again, yeah. this is the head of the women's division talking to the head of publicity. Yeah. And Mickelson writes back basically, okay. Like, wow. Wow. Like, Deucin, one of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's most recent biographer, refers to Molly Deucin as America's first female political boss. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's not wrong. Wow. Um, and, and so then, uh, yeah, and so they're, they're so at the heart of this. But then, because the only book that we'd had about this was a biography of Deucin, Deucin retires after the 36th campaign. Mm. And so it seemed like this whole system ended with her, and right. it doesn't. Oh, Everything yeah. she builds keeps going for 20 more years. Wow. Even Bertha Adkins, who's the woman who works for Eisenhower, the Republican woman, mm -hmm. um, she gets hired by the RNC in 1950 to overhaul RNC work with women. Wow. And she explicitly, she says this in mm -hmm. multiple sources, goes and copies what the Democrats have been doing for the previous 20 wow. years. Um, so it's this incredible longevity to this system. And, I mean, and women are at the center of these campaigns, Right. India Edwards is there on the train with the whistle stop campaign train with Truman in 48. Um, she's there's letters coming in from like the head of the Democratic Party for New, for New York State after the election saying what the women's division did in 48 is what swung the election. Wow. Um, and, you know, FDR sends a letter to the head of the women's division who uh, runs it during his 1940 campaign. And he says, you know, we had a tremendous victory. This is when he's winning his third term. Wow. Something no president has ever done. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he sends her a note. He's like, we had a tremendous victory and a lot of the credit is due you. Like, these women are enormously influential and no one had heard of them. Right. That's crazy. That's crazy. Like, we have to get, we have to know who these women are. Yeah, like, absolutely. they shaped our country. Right. And we've never heard of them. Yeah. And I think it also, to go back to Sophia's question right before the break, if we've never heard of these women, mm. imagine all the other women doing amazing things that we have lost. Yeah. If we lost these ladies, like, yeah. it just sort of boggles the mind. And, we, and a lot of those women will never get those stories back, mm. right? Because they're right. not the head of the women's division. Yeah. They're not depositing their papers right at you know at national archives run libraries right right they're not these are incredibly prominent women yeah um and a lot of women's stories have just gotten lost and we'll never be able to get them back so mm -hmm. the least i could do was bring these five yeah. back to us yeah yeah absolutely that makes sense for sure why do you think it's taken so long for these five women's stories to be uncovered 
Um, I think so. There's there's a couple of reasons, and this is a, a sort of there's a little bit of inside baseball here about how history works. Um, women's historians, as a field, generally don't look that much at electoral politics mm. um, because there's been this assumption um, that women weren't there until the '60s, really, the 1960s, um, and that assumption has sort of been reinforced by by scholarship on both the political science and the history side that argued, and this was what actually got me to ask the first big question. Everything that was out there before that I wrote this book said that after uh, politicians sort of figured out that women didn't vote as a single block by like the end of the 1920s, right? 19th Amendment passes in 1920, mm-hmm. so we have a couple of elections, and they're like, oh, we don't actually need to worry about them that much. Right. Um, that then national politics did not think about women voters until feminists made them think about women voters in the late 1960s, 1970s. That's that's what's out there Mm. in the history scholarship and in the political science scholarship. Mm. Um, So if that's the narrative, it's really easy. You don't go looking, right? Right, right. Unless you're me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and you're like, really? You read that and you're like, I'm not sure that's true. Right, Especially when some of the political science books just literally skip over the 40 years that I'm writing about. Wow. Like, and then just go, because there's no data, right? Mm. Political science needs numbers. Right. And there's no numbers. Right. (laughs) Because this is... There's no nothing even remotely approaching reliable exit polling hmm. in the in the time period that I'm writing about. Yeah. So there's no numbers for the political scientists to crunch. So it's as if it doesn't exist to them. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it is that there was a narrative out there that these women didn't exist hmm. that had been created like for particular reasons. And right. so women's historians, because there are so many other stories that we have to go get and because yeah. there are so many other things that we have to uncover kind of took that at face value. Mm. Um, and then on the flip side, people who write about Washington-centric politics don't think about women mm. as a group. That is that is a, an overstatement, but as a group, they don't think about women. The best example of this is there's a, he's a sort of popular biographer, passed away just a couple years ago, named David McCullough. Has like dozens of best-selling biographies. Won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Truman. The oh, thing's wow. like 900 pages long. It's published in the like first half of the 1990s. India Edwards is nowhere in those 900 pages, hmm. in spite of the fact that she published a memoir some 15 years before McCullough's biography is published. Wow. So there is some just sexism mm. that's going yeah. on here also, yeah. right? When you see that, like I have a, a literary agent for this project, and when I discovered that fact, I emailed her and I was like, how snarky can I be? <laughs> yeah. And she was like, yeah. oh, I love this question. Give me details. Yeah. And I gave her the details. She was like, oh, snark away. Yeah. And I feel like that, like slightly bad because right. he's dead and he can't defend himself. Yeah. But I'm like, but she had, her book was there. Yeah. Like it's out there. It's published. You could, it was not hard right. for you to find this woman and include her in your story. And you didn't. Mm. Um, and so there's definitely just some sexism yeah. going on there also. Very interesting. Huh. Yeah, and that's cool that it's like a very multifaceted like reasoning why they haven't um, had their stories told. And cool that it's like, you know, not just over sexism necessarily, but also that that plays a role is important to think about for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so for our last question before the break, let's see. Um, I'm trying to come up with a good question. Let's see. Okay. What ways do the women in your book defy or confirm stereotypes of American women of the time? Ooh. Okay. This is a hard <laughs> one for me to give a short answer. Yeah. To. Yeah. Um, oh, that's, so, it's so okay I'll, if it goes a little over. Yeah. Okay. So um, 
they are working with, so in their work, they do not challenge stereotypes in terms of how they think about American women. And it's also important to say that the stereotype of most women as homemakers in this period is actually not a stereotype. It is mm. it is factually accurate. The right. majority of American women did not work outside the home mm-hmm. in the period that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and like, especially if we're looking during World War II and later, they're using woman and housewife as synonyms. Okay. Like those two words, just those words are synonyms mm. in women's division material, whether it's stuff that they're publishing or in their own correspondence, like those two things are synonyms. Mm-hmm. Um, so they definitely, and again, I do think it's important, like I got pushed by this early on in a, by an anonymous reviewer for the press. They're like, it's not a stereotype if it's true. I'm like, right. 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 Um, <laughs> so, um, so they are, you know, the majority it's like in 1960, it's like 40% mm-hmm. of women are in the paid labor force. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, not a small number of women, right. but not the majority. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then on the flip side, the women, these five women themselves, only one of them sort of fits the mold of who you would expect to be doing this kind of work. India mm-hmm. Edwards is doing this work after her children are grown and out of the house. Okay. So that yeah. fits. Yeah. Um, the women on, the two women who preceded her, so uh, Dorothy McAllister is the woman who's running things for the 40 campaign. Gladys Tillett is the woman who's running things for the 44 campaign and really throughout the war. Um, both of them are working mothers. Oh, wow. Um, Tillett's older two children are, are, are out of the house. They're mm-hmm. both in college when she gets the job in January of 41. Um, but her youngest, her daughter Sarah, is only 15. Oh, wow. Um, and so how Tillett works that is that she is from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and she has an office and leaves a secretary, employs a secretary in her house in Charlotte. Mm. And she goes back and forth between oh, wow. D.C. and Charlotte, wow. like as much as she can. Once the war gets started and the campaign season kicks up for the 42 midterms, that becomes a little bit untenable. And so she brings in, and Sarah does her last couple of years of school at a boarding school in mm. uh, in Virginia. Still not super close to D.C. Right, um, yeah. I actually, I, the one descendant of any of these women that I found is actually Sarah's daughter. Mm. So one of Tillett's granddaughters. Um, and when we first started talking, she was like, my mother had a difficult relationship with her mother. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm like... I'm seeing little mm. breadcrumbs of that. Mm-hmm. Dorothy McAllister is even more interesting. When McAllister gets the gig in 37, um, she her daughters are young. Her husband, at the end of 1937, gets elected as a judge for the Michigan Supreme Court. They're for Michigan. Um, so in the 1940 census, I have Dorothy McAllister as a head of household single mother in Alexandria with her two daughters aged 10 and 14. Oh, wow. Because her husband's working, her husband is in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Like, and so she is, and and I, the joke I always make about this is, I have a 13 year old daughter. I know what it means to get two girls that age up and out the door to school in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. And while she absolutely, definitely had had to have had uh, paid domestic workers mm-hmm. who are home when the girls get home from school, for example, right. Um, in 1930, when she's in Michigan, the family's affluent enough that they have a live-in domestic worker in Michigan mm. in 1930. That's not reflected in the census wow. in 1940. There's not somebody living in with her and the girls. Oh, wow. So she is the one getting them out the door every morning. And then once they're off to school, she's going across the Potomac River and electing somebody president for the third consecutive time, something that has never been done before. That's amazing. Like, I know the least about her as a person and that kind of, because neither of her kids had kids and it just oh, sort of yeah. like, and it kills me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that much about her. Like, I would, of all of the five of them, who would I most like to go talk to? It would be her because right. I know the least about her. Uh, yeah. And I'm 
fascinated about yeah. how she pulled this off. That's so impressive. Um, and then just briefly, the other two, and we can get back to this after the break, um, the other two were lesbians, ah. which also is not what you would expect. Right, right. Um, and uh, so that's Molly Dewson and Bertha Adkins, the woman who works for Eisenhower in the 50s. Hmm. If you know anything about Cold War history of sexuality, she is fundamentally not supposed to be in that job ah. from everything we know, right? And she's yeah. the, that's the cover image of the book is her and Eisenhower sitting in the Oval Office. Right, okay. Um, she is not supposed to be in that room. Hmm. Um, and so for, for the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, um, there's this thing called the Lavender Scare. Hundreds of people were fired from federal government jobs on suspicion of homosexuality in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Bertha Adkins should not have this job. And wow. so, yeah, so all, so they're all, all, all five of them are really sort of fascinating in yeah. the way their personal lives intersect with, with their work. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to take our next break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, we're joined again by Dr. Blair, discussing her book, her new book, Bringing Home, Bringing Home the White House, The Hidden History of the Women Who Shaped the Presidency in the 20th Century, and we're going to continue our discussion on it through our next section. So to start us off, um, was there any information about the lives of the five saleswomen of their parties that especially surprised you during, their, during your research? Um, so there was a lot of stuff, obviously, about their lives that we talked about right before the break. So I think what I'm going to talk about instead is, like, the most surprising tactic that I saw them using. Oh, yeah. Um, this is one of my favorite stories to tell about the book, because one of the things that I loved as a sort of politics nerd, right, um, I... as well, sidebar. Um, there's a lot of like pop culture references that I make for why I do what I do. Yeah. Um, I am both exactly the right age to have been the first generation of girls to have American Girl dolls. Right. Um, and there is like scholarship on how many of us then went and became historians. Yeah. Um, but I was also a senior in high school when the West Wing premiered. Ah. Um, so we are all, it turned all of us into political junkies. Yeah. Um, and so I'm fascinated by like the the, the doing, like how do you do the campaigning? So in 1948, um, the one of the big issues of that election, the biggest domestic issue was inflation, um, which resonates in a way that did not with right, <laughs> maybe right. five years ago. Um, and so obviously this is a, a, it's not a topic that Truman only talks about with women. Um, I've got notes that were prepared for him to give a speech at a union hall in Flint, Michigan. Mm. And the very top note is the number one issue for this audience is the price of meat. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so this is not a strictly gendered issue, but it's an issue that did resonate with women in a particular way because women were the ones doing most of the shopping for their families. Right. And so the women's division really wants to dramatize this issue in the campaign. And there's a couple of different ways that they did that. But the one that I sort of find most interesting is um, they did a series of radio programs for the last month of October. They do two a week, the last month of the campaign. So for the month of October, they're airing two radio programs a month um, that are hugely successful. Variety magazine, the like entertainment sort of oh, yeah. journal, um, praises them as like the most innovative campaign thing they've seen in a long time. Like they're really successful. And how they get the inflation issue into these in real time is that in September, India Edwards sent letters to women in 15 cities all over the country that had a schedule in them. And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm pulling several. This isn't precisely like the, the way that the date, the shopping in the cities would line up. But as an example, she would say, okay, on October, what is today, 5th? On October 5th, I want women in Boston, Atlanta, and Denver 
to go and buy pork chops, green beans, and a gallon of milk. Hmm. And then, and this is my favorite part, and then use, and then send us a telegram uh, <laughs> because the mail is slow and long distance calls aren't really a super reliable thing yet. Right. So then you send a telegram with how much you paid for those items that day to the women's division office in D.C. Wow. They then get out. Part of why inflation was such a big deal was because the Republicans had gotten control of Congress in 1946 and in January of 47 had ended the price controls mm. that had still been in place from World War II. Um, and so then what they do is they take how much did you spend today mm -hmm. for these items? Then they take the list that the Office of Price Administration had oh. published in December of 46. Oh, yeah. So how much would you have paid when the price controls were still in place in mm -hmm. December of 46? And they compare oh. the numbers wow. as a way and as a way of basically blaming the, the Republicans for inflation being like, look. Yeah. This is why the prices have gone up so much. But it's mm. such a brilliant way. And it's different women and it's different cities and different items yeah. every time. And huh. then they take that information, that comparative number, and put it in the script for the radio yeah. program that they're going to record the next day. Wow. And so it's a brilliant just sort of like, again, tactically, how do you do a campaign? Yeah. Um, I, I was just fascinated yeah. by that by that system yeah. um, that they set up. That's really interesting. And neat of like, you know, it's a woman organizing this and mobilizing other women to be a part of it is super interesting and a neat perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So moving back to the like bigger social picture, what events or social changes occurred in order for women to have more mobility in politics, would you say? So there's a couple of things. I think what happens in the 1930s um, with the Great Depression and the New Deal, mm -hmm. is a couple of things that allow there to be, and other historians have written about this a little bit, um, is that both there is such a sense of this is a national emergency, and right. so it's sort of all hands to the pump. Like, if you've got any sort of expertise that could plausibly help us at all, yeah. come on down. Um, and a lot of women have been doing work, I'm thinking here of like Frances Perkins, mm. who becomes FDR's Secretary of Labor. She's the first female cabinet secretary. Um, she was, a, uh, she was an investigator for the state of New York into labor conditions mm. for like two decades before she gets into, uh, Washington. She's doing some other things in there also, but like, she's the lead investigator for the state of New York in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Oh, wow. And so, and a lot of other women have been doing similar kinds of work. Molly Dusen's first job was as a, uh, an investigator into minimum wage compliance. The state of Mass in Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts put a, min a minimum wage in place and they were sending her around to check. And that's this sort of a longer story about the progressive era and what's going on with this first yeah. generation of college educated women. Right. And they're getting into this kind, these kinds of fields yeah. because they have to make jobs for themselves. Right. 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 When they graduate from college at the turn of the 20th century, mm -hmm. they can't all go be teachers and nurses and they don't want to all right. go be teachers. And so they create these other sort of niches of employment, things yeah. like this kind of late workplace investigative work, social work, mm. things like that, that then are really needed yeah. to address the crisis of the Great Depression. Right, right. So that's one way that women get in mm. more in the Great Depression. The other thing is just that FDR has this quote where he talks about how women are part of, and I haven't pulled this quote out in a little while, so I'm going to botch it a little bit, but it's <laughs> something like, um, women are part of the collective wisdom of the citizenry. Oh, yeah. He just really values having input from a diverse group of people. Yeah. Just personally, he finds that important. Right, right. Um, and so that's another reason why. And that, and you see that both with, um, both with FDR 
and with Eisenhower. Mm. That they, like, finding a feminist Eisenhower was one of the yeah. most surprising things yeah. of the whole project. Um, but he clearly, and, and Bertha Adkins, the woman who, who worked for him, is asked about this in an oral history that she does in the late 60s. And she says very straightforwardly, he worked with women during the war who did their job well. He valued their advice. Mm -hmm. He didn't see any reason why women couldn't keep doing that kind of work just because the war had ended. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so he is also, like FDR, just really values a diverse range of voices, values hearing women's opinions, um, doesn't, again, doesn't see any reason why women shouldn't be taking part in these conversations. That's awesome. Truman, this is less true for. Ah, yes. um, <laughs> there's some real sexist stuff that mm-hmm. I have Truman, like, in writing saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so Truman, this is less true for. Um, the other thing that I'll mention quickly is that World War II is a real pivot here also, oh, both yeah. for the reasons related to Eisenhower that I just said, mm-hmm. but also for the first time women are the majority of people casting ballots because so many men are deployed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and soldiers can vote absentee, but it's very cumbersome. Yeah. And so only about a quarter of deployed soldiers wind up voting. And mm. like the sources I've looked at don't disaggregate out how many of that quarter are still stateside. Oh, yeah. Right? Right? Like I, I did a little bit of like, okay, where would you have been yeah. in, the, in like October of 44? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're in uh, Europe, you're fighting your way into Germany. Like you're at Aachen and like first, tri- you know, right. it's... Like, the Battle of the Bulge hasn't quite started yet, but you're in that general area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to remember which battle's going on in the Pacific. But you're in the middle of some battle in the Pacific. Right. Like, you're not going to go through the six steps to cast yeah. an absentee ballot yeah. <laughs> in that context. And so women are the majority of voters huh. for the first time. And that gives a lot more visibility to women as voters. Mm-hmm. In the 1930s, women are doing this work, but women as voters yeah. aren't really as much of a target from World War II and after, it's both women doing the work and women are targeted as a voting block. And the war is really the the pivot for that. Yeah. I never thought about that. That's really cool. It's sort of shocking how absent yeah. that is because it's so obvious what you figure it out. Right, right. But, like, there have been two books published on the 44 campaign in the 21st century that I found neither one of them mentioned this fact. Huh. Wow. Again, the sexism of yeah. male political historians. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. One last question before the break. What is up? What is next for you and your research endeavors? Yeah. So um, the next book, which is going to be slow because I'm department chair, <laughs> um, Bertha Adkins, who I mentioned a couple times, is the woman who works for Eisenhower. Um, and I mentioned, you know, before the break, she is fundamentally not supposed to be in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, her partner, who's a na- woman named Winifred Helms, Winnie, Winnie kept a diary of their time in Washington. She also works for the government. Oh. Um, and then I have, I know. Basically, from 1950 until Adkins' death in 1982, I know where they were the whole time. Oh, wow. Like, I can, I, I know what they were doing professionally the whole time. I know where they were and what they were up to. Um, and so the next book is just going to be about them. Huh. Um, I have uncovered a lesbian power couple in mid-century Washington. I got to write about them. <laughs> like, I can't leave that alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's also, like, eventually, like, Winnie teaches one of the first women's history classes at this college on the eastern shore of Maryland where they're from in the early 70s. Um, for most of the 1960s, uh, uh, Bertha Adkins, Winnie calls her Tad because you're not going to call your partner Bertha because that's a terrible name. Yeah. Um, and so in, in my head, she's Tad. Um, Tad is the headmistress of the Foxcroft School, oh, which yeah. is this very she-she girls boarding school outside D.C. Um, and Winnie's on the faculty. So at some point, I'll have to go, like, 
look at yearbooks from a 1960s oh, yes. boarding school, um, <laughs> which will be fun. Yeah. Um, I actually know somebody who went there, so that's uh-huh. I have like an alumni in. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, somebody that I went to middle school with wound up going to high oh, wow. school there. So um, in a real random fluke of luck. <laughs> um, and so that's the next book is just like telling their story. Again, like that's really at this point in my career, that's what I want to do is I want to really go in a more biographical direction yeah. and just tell the stories of these women who are so important, um, but who we've really, we've really lost. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. That's really great. We're going to go to our last ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me here on WEGL 91.1. Before we get into trivia, we have one final question to ask Dr. Blair here about her new book, Bringing Home the White House. And that is, where did your researching process take you? And were most of the sources digitized or in a particular library and going into that like source uh, finding? Yeah, so a lot of the, most of the research for this book was conducted at presidential libraries. Okay. um, Which some of it was digitized. So Mm -hmm. like, for example, um, a lot of Eleanor Roosevelt's correspondence has been digitized. And there was a bit more digital stuff just generally Mm -hmm. at the FDR library Mm -hmm. than at the other two. But I still, so I spent a week each in uh, the FDR library in Hyde Park, New York, uh, the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, um, and the Truman Library in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, And most of the women that I write about, their personal papers were there, Mm. um, were at the library of the presidents that they worked for. Right. Um, The one exception to that was Gladys Tillett. Mm. Um, She spends her whole life working in politics, and most of it is in North Carolina politics. Oh, wow. Um, And so her papers are actually at, at Chapel Hill. Oh, okay. um, at, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and it's an enormous collection. Like, the woman kept everything. Oh, wow. Um, and gave it all. Yeah. Um, so it was great. Um, yeah. It was really, really great, actually. Um, but, yeah, I think it's why why I sort of asked you guys to ask me that question is it wasn't hard to find these people. Like, yeah. Like, I went in, I went to presidential libraries, right? Not obscure little right. places. Um, and just looked yeah. for the women. And I, I also always, when I talk about this, want to give a shout out to the archivists at the Eisenhower Library in particular, who have a whole finding aid on women in those papers. Wow. That somebody made 10, 15 years before I got there. Yeah. Which was hugely helpful to me to be able to find the stuff that wasn't in Adkins' papers, mm-hmm. but was sort of in, in Truman and FDR's libraries, there were collections for the women's division. That wasn't there. There wasn't that mm-hmm. at the Eisenhower Library, but I had this other this finding aid that somebody, God bless her, um, <laughs> her uh, Mrs. Armstrong is the I'm forgetting her first name is the archivist who prepared it, um, and sort of guiding breadcrumbing me to here's all the good stuff about women yeah. here. Um, and I think you know she was she was sort of waiting for me to show up, right? <laughs> oh right? yeah, yeah. Like somebody's gonna want this at some point. There's so much good stuff here about women, but it's just not you know it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how this is a project that really falls in between the crack of women's history and political history. And so because I got trained in both of those areas as a graduate student, because I've taught in both of those fields extensively, being sort of a generalist for so much of my career, Mm -hmm. I'm the one to kind of be like, let's go poke around in this weird little space that seems super obvious, but that nobody's looked at yet. Yeah, yeah. And that's so interesting that it all started with you, like, trying to, like, go against what the general, like, claim was of that era of politics yeah absolutely nice all right so with that being answered next is our trivia moment here okay so for our first trivia question who was the first woman secretary of state 
So I'm thinking. <laughs> There's a woman named Jean Kirkpatrick who worked for Reagan, mm. but I'm like 95% sure she was our like delegate to the UN and not Secretary of State. So is it Madeleine Albright? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Was the woman lawyer who worked for equal rights and suffrage, co-founded the ACLU in 1910, and helped write the Equal Rights Amendment. So the clue here for me is lawyer. If I if I had if lawyer hadn't been in there and the co-founding <laughs> the ACLU, then I would have said Alice Paul because I know Alice Paul was one of the main authors of the Equal Rights Amendment and was mm-hmm. an active suffragist. But right. the lawyer part, I think it's Crystal Eastman. Yes. All right. She has a great, uh, there's some great uh, primary sources by her that are widely available, by the way. If you want to get a really good flavor of like 19 teens feminism, go read some Crystal Eastman. It's good stuff. Very cool. Uh, Two for two on trivia. Yay. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So we had you answer these same questions at the end of the last time we got to have you in the studio, but we always like to end with them. So we'll see if you have like a little bit of a different take if you're um, thinking more about these two questions for our wrap up of the show. So why is it important that we study history? Uh, I think it's important that we study history because there are still so many things that we don't know and learning about them change how changes how we understand the country. Right. So the big takeaway of my book, I hope that people take away, is that there's never been a time when women weren't involved in politics. Mm. Right? And so women's involvement in politics, therefore, is not unusual. Right. It's very normal. Right. It's very usual. It's yeah. always happened. Um, and and also that, and we didn't talk about that, that this that much, what these women are doing is sending huge amounts of mail out and telling women all over the country that they are the saleswomen of the party. Mm-hmm. They are actively politicizing the mid-century home. Right. That baby boom, you know, suburban yeah. split-level ranch. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's important also because there's such a narrative of that they're, you know, people are like, oh, we used to not talk about politics at home or as families. And the mm. implication underneath that statement is always that that was a better time. Right. And usually they're talking about the early Cold War mm. when they say those statements. That's normally what they have in yeah. mind. And so to be able to show that the wives and mothers of the early Cold War are being instructed by leaders of both parties to strike up political conversations yeah. with their friends and neighbors and given like the talking points and facts and figures to do it. Right, right. Totally blows up that myth. Yeah. Like, both parties are explicitly politicizing these right. homes, and these women are doing this work. Mm-hmm. Now, they're doing this work largely while their kids are at school. Right, right. Which is how it's easy when their kids are then the ones driving the national discourse nowadays. Yeah, yeah. For them to not, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's, like, willful ignorance on their part. The mm-hmm. whole system is structured around these women doing that while their kids are at school. Right. Um, and so it would have been yeah. quite invisible to their children especially young children um but i think it's super important to again sort of blow up those myths about about home and women and politics and you can't do that if you don't go find these stories yeah so you have to keep digging and you have to keep looking because as we find new things we get a more accurate understanding of the past that makes sense for sure for our last question of the show uh what advice do you have for current and future students of history um, so this one, I have no idea, by the way, how I answered that first question the first time around. This one, I remember more what I said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I think similar but slightly different to what I said the last time is don't be scared of the big questions. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you know, Victoria said that she loves seeing that that's how the process works even for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, right, this is this is the process mm-hmm. for everyone. Yeah. Right? You have a big question, you go find some archives that help you answer it. 
Right. You know, you, you and and also follow your gut. For both of my books, it's been there's a hole in the scholarship and I have a hunch that this might be able to answer that question and fill that hole. Right. For the first book, it was that women's organizations like the YWCA were all over the women's history scholarship until about World War II. And then they vanished Mm. completely from the historical scholarship. And I'm like, but they didn't all lock their doors. Like maybe going and looking and seeing what they were up to will help me get at what grassroots feminism looked like. Right. Right. And for this one, it was really just a sense of I'm not sure this argument is right. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't. and, And I mean, in the fact that the that the book looks the way it does is purely a fortuitous decision on my part to go chronologically through the archives. Like I said, initially it was this massive, like most of the 20th century project, Mm -hmm. but I was like, okay, this project is enormous. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. And starting at the beginning is what helped me find these women. Um, So trust your gut. Yeah. Like if you've been taking classes and doing this for a while, you know what, you know what you're doing. (laughs) Like, you know, you don't feel like you do. Yeah. um, But you know what you're doing. And so trust your gut and trust your hunches and just go dig around and see what you see. And because you'll always be able to tell some story. Mm -hmm. It might not be the story you thought you would tell. This is not the story I thought I would tell. I thought I was going to be talking about a much longer thing about and more about campaign media and like pitches like how are we speaking to women as voters Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about that a little bit right but that's not the main thrust of the book but it's what I thought it was going to be and then the sources changed that so there there will always be a story there it just might not be the one that you thought it was going to be when you started that's really cool and great advice Yay. So we'll end our hour here with a couple of thank yous. Thank you to Dr. Blair for coming on and joining us for our uh, second conversation with you. This has been awesome. Thank you to the History Department, of course, and our faculty advisor for the History Club, Dr. Schultz. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for uh, their support and for housing the History Department, of course. Thank you to our researcher, Colby, who uh, works hard to help us get these questions made and uh, sent along. Thank you to Weagle for, of course, giving us the airtime to have our radio hour and our consequential podcast. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in every week and for being a part of making this possible. All right. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.